The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. All right, boys and girls, and welcome back to Brutal Nation. I'm your host, Scott Alexander, and right across me is the one, the only, the beast with the biggest, sharpest teeth in all the Pacific Northwest, Tammy the Barracuda. Underwood. Barracuda. Oh, Barracuda. Dun, 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 dun. Hi, everybody. And you know what? One of these days, I'm going to bite you. Probably. And you probably have rabies. Probably. Never know. I know that you haven't been beat chipped. I scanned you. Oh, well. Back to the vet you go. Hey, good luck pronouncing this last <laughs> name, by the way. Dude, I, I know. Just... I had it all in my head. Then you asked me how to pronounce it. And it's like, ah. All I got to say is may the force be with you. I do have something to ask our listeners out there. So we post a question with every single episode, okay? Every episode. on. Well, it it only shows up on the spot if you listen through Spotify. It's through the Spotify. Oh, okay. Through Spotify. Well, have some fun with us, man. Go on. Answer the question. Give us your opinion. Yeah, whether it's yes or no or, you know, because usually I ask yes or no questions because I don't want people to write me an essay. But, you know. Oh, I wrote an essay once. His name was uh, was uh, was uh, uh, Juan. Yeah, Juan, and his brother Jose. <laughs> I wrote my essay. You wrote my essay. You're so dumb. Jesus Christ. So, anyways, no, this is the story of Michael Gargiulo. I think G A R G I U L O Gargiulo. You know what? Yeah, I'm proud of you, and I'll tell you why. why? Because you did that. Wh- I can't even. I I tried in my head. And in my I know, head, right? I'm going, mm, not today, yeah. motherfucker. Yeah, I think that's how it's pronounced. Now, check this out. I know that practically everybody on the face of this planet, unless they're Amish, and maybe even then, has watched TV, gone to the movies, or listened to music in some fashion, right? Well, you would think, yeah. Yeah. Unless and, you're living in a fucking cave or something. Under a rock. And I'm pretty sure there's a, a shit ton of people out there who've had hopes of making it big, right? Correct. I'll admit... Drew Carey is my ultimate hall pass, right? Well, him, then Donnie Wahlberg, and it was uh, Troy Aikman, Joy- Jason Witten. But you wouldn't know those last three if they knocked you over the head. Are those, aren't those gay porn stars? No, they're Dallas Cowboys. Oh, they are gay porn stars. Okay, <laughs> my bad. My bad. However, I've also always admired Ashton Kutcher. Right, mainly because he's a hometown Iowa boy who was able to shed the idiots out walking around stigma. You know, although he played an idiot in that 70s show, he's, pre- I mean, he's very successful, you know. That being said, I can't imagine what it would be like to move to Hollywood, hoping to make it big, meet an actor, specifically Ashton Kutcher, start dating him, then have him invite me to the Grammys. I would die. Metaphorically, of course, but I wouldn't expect it to happen literally. However, that's what happened to a woman by the name of Ashley Ellery. Now, Ashley was a no- was a North Carolina native who had dreams of making it big in Hollywood. As this a is the designer. dude that killed his girlfriend, huh? Yeah. Okay. She moved to Hollywood in the late nineties and eventually started dating Ashton Kutcher, who off and on while he was still still starting out in Hollywood. Right around the time he got hired for that 70s show. Okay. Now in 2001, he invited her to go to the Grammys, to a Grammys after party and she said she would. However, they never hooked up that night and I'll tell you why in a minute. In fact, she was never seen alive again. What happened to Ashley was so barbaric that the authorities knew that the person who killed her had killed somebody before. In fact, one detective walked into the scene and said, we're dealing with a serial killer, which they never say that right away, right? 
how it would it would be some time yet before they learned his name. Even then, he has always maintained his innocence. Okay? All right. Now, Ashley Lauren Ellen grew up in Northern California with an upper middle class parents. In 1999, when she was 22 years old, she actually left her family home and set out to live on her own in Hollywood. She met a girl by the name of Jennifer DeSisto, and they rented a bungalow together right down the road from the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Now, she was beautiful. She was a vivacious young woman with the striking blonde hair. So it didn't take her long to, you know, get book modeling gigs, right? When you're young and beautiful and blonde, you get them. Now, you get way more than that. Yeah. But she, had actually, she actually had dreams, didn't want to become a model. She wanted to be a fashion designer. So she enrolled in the Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising. Now, according to her roommate, Jennifer, things were going well for Ashley. She hung out with a lot of Hollywood celebrity type people. She was very kind, very friendly, you know, and kind of a free spirit. However, there also seems to be a little shadier side to her. Because although she was going to school to become a fashion designer, she was also known to be quite the partier. And according to some of her friends, she would often, you know, consume meth and cocaine at those parties. Okay, I got to throw something in. I admire real designers. And let me tell you, so the gayest thing I can ever watch in my life, but it's because of my third ex-wife. She got me uh, watching a show called uh, America's Next Top Designer. Or it was something oh, like that. Oh, I think I know which one you're talking about. The one with that. Uh, or maybe it was called Project Runway. Project One Runway, yeah. Yeah, where these designers. They are freaking amazing on there, aren't they? And the, they do it quick. This Okay, so they get sent home from, uh, and I, this may have been from the first season. I can't remember. They get sent to the, the apartment that, the, that they get rented for them, right? Right. And the goal is find things in this apartment and make a dress. Out of just things that are inside the apartment. Mm-hmm. And people did a great job. But this one dude made this beautiful dress out of freaking coffee filters. Really? It was beautiful. Wow. I'm sitting there going, dude, hand, hats off to you, man. Because that takes that takes a lot of talent, a lot of skill, a lot of creativity. Yeah. I was like, I was impressed as hell. Yeah. No, I think it was the first se- I think it was the, the first season or second season of that show that uh the winner was a designer out of Portland. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, I remember whatever season I watched had a designer that uh in his full-time job was designing clothes for porn. Oh. Um they wear clothes in porn? <laughs> I don't. I was like I've never seen clothes in porn. Even when I'm playing the part of the pool boy and saying, know. "Do you need me to lay some pipe?" And then your mom says yes. Oh, my Um, God. We're done. (laughs) No coffee filter required. Anyways, so apparently she liked to party hard, right? The court records even indicate that she often took trips to Vegas where she had a side gig as a pole dancing stripper. But there's no shame in that. Look, if you got it, flaunt it. Yeah, it's an honest job. Like, seriously, man. I've dated strippers before. Well, and 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 a good strip joint, I mean, they don't touch you. You know what I mean? You're just up there dancing, blah, 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 whatever. Even when I was dating strippers, okay? Keep it in mind. These are my girlfriends at different times, not all at once. Um, Uh Uh-huh. You know, the the bouncers straight out told me, hey, I I know you two are dating, but, you know, you can't touch her at all. Right. While she's while she's yeah. performing, you know, like, of course, you guys can do whatever you want when she's not on the stage. Like if you guys are having a drink or whatever. Right. Or if she's not performing at all. Like if, if you guys just come in here for drinks, that's fine. But right. you can't 
you know, like grab her ass or anything like that. I said, right. well, that's and I was like, that's kind of common sense. And I remember one bouncer sitting there telling me, and no, you'd it isn't. You'd be surprised. You'd, yeah. you'd be surprised. I mean, there are so many idiots yeah. out and here. And then they get jealous because guys are fawning all over their girlfriend. Oh, yeah. That, yeah. That's been Because I've heard some strip joints say that you cannot have your significant other come in here. Right, right, right. You know, because, for, for that reason. Yeah, you know? for But the that bouncers reason. all knew me. And, yeah. Like, I, forgot, I knew that every dude, but every stripper I've dated, I knew every dude in there, they're, they're making money for a reason because they're fucking rocking gorgeous. No doubt, yo. They got nice ass, nice tits, and they can work a pole. That's why they're getting paid. It's not like you got frumpy frumpazilla up there, <laughs> you know, yeah. where, where guys are going, woo. You know what? You want me to be honest with you? I think I was 45 years old before I ever stepped foot in a strip joint. No shit? Yeah, no shit. Oh, dang, my, my ex-boyfriend took me to one here in Portland. I'll tell you the weirdest thing. I got more dates with strippers only because I I, I never, I, I just ignored them. Because the, the strip clubs that me and my friends used to go to, we would go there because they had either really good food uh-huh. or they got drink specials. Mm-hmm. Care less about the stripper. Right. You know, um... And then there was one that I, I took care of some business for because she got a, was getting attacked outside when I was coming out. Um, but, uh, you know, but yeah, basic common sense stuff. But yeah. honestly, the, the, the strippers that, that I've dated, and they, I think they still get a bad stigma. Oh, yeah. They're, most of them are really, they're good people. Yeah. Okay. They, some of them are, are legit paying their way through college. Right. Legit. Right, right. You know, you know? they're. Most of the time, they're they're, they're they're real people. They're just there doing a fucking job. Exactly. I mean, for fuck's exactly. sakes. So anyway, I'm sure it wasn't very difficult for a beautiful free spirit like Ashley to find men who would be interested in her, right? So when a young up-and-coming actor by the name of Ashton Kutcher asked her out, I don't think she even hesitated to say, uh, yeah. In fact, paparazzi reported the couple had been seen around town together a few times. In fact, he was planning on attending a Grammy after party on February 21st, 2001, and he asked her to go with him. Now, he later testified he and Ashley made plans to meet up at around 1030 that night, uh, the night of the Grammys. He wasn't attending the event himself, but he was going to watch the gal at his friend's house and um, then go to an after party. Now, phone records indicate there were two calls between him and Ashley earlier in the evening. Their first conversation was about 7.30 p.m., and their second was about 8.24. According to Ashton, when they hung up the phone after the second call, nothing seemed out of the ordinary, and he thought everything was going as planned. However, 10.30 came and went, and she never arrived. Right, So he tried calling her phone several times, but she never answered. He thought there was a miscommunication between them. Perhaps she was still at her house thinking he was going to pick her up. And they would drive to the party together. So he wasn't concerned when he headed over there, right? He arrived at her house at approximately 10.45. And this is what kills me. At approximately 10.45 that night and knocked on the door. When nobody answered, he tried to open the front door, but it was locked. Then he tried looking through the window to see if he could see anybody inside. He later said nothing really seemed out of the ordinary. He did notice a dark red spot on the landing that led to her bedroom. But from where he was standing at the window, he thought someone had just spilled some red wine. Right? Yeah, legit. Yeah. Yeah. So, therefore, it didn't raise any alarms with him. So, when he didn't get any response from his phone calls or going to the house, he just assumed she was brushing him off. You know? Or something had upset her and she was out with another friend. He figured he'd talk to her the next day or something else. So, he left. Right. 
Well, originally on the evening of February 21st, Jennifer, her roommate, was planning on spending the evening at home, and those plans changed unexpectedly. So approximately 30 minutes before Ashton arrived at the house to check on Ashley, Jennifer came home. No, she, oh, only to find she had forgotten her keys at her friend's house, right? So she had to go all the way back to her friend's house. And since Ashley's car was still parked in the driveway and the lights were on, she figured her roommate may have been home. But when nobody answered, she, you know, had to get back to her friend's house um, to get her keys. She left and stayed at the friend's house, got her keys. Once she got her keys in the morning, she returned home, okay? So when Jennifer opened the door and walked into the house, she said nothing seemed out of the ordinary. So when she reached the landing that led to the bedrooms and saw Ashley laying on the floor, she really didn't give it much thought until she got closer. She kind of played a lot of jokes. I kind of walked toward her, and as I got closer, I knew she was relatively blue in the face and some blood around here. And she was, like, pointing around the mouth. There was blood around her mouth. Now, Jennifer saw Ashley's body laying on the landing with her face up toward the ceiling. She was wearing her turquoise bathrobe with a pool of blood underneath her. There was also blood spatter covering the ceiling and the walls. In fact, there was a bathroom close to where Ashley's body was discovered that was also covered in blood spatter. So could you imagine the violence of that that attack? Yeah, that's fucked. Yeah, so the authorities theorized the killer attempted to remove Ashley's head. It appears as if the person thrust a knife so deep in her neck but just couldn't cut through her spinal cord to sever her head. Now, the medical examiner also found a V-shaped knife wound on the back of her neck as well. And this could mean the attacker tried to cut her head off from behind when he couldn't cut through the spinal cord from the front. So, um, now the assault on Ashley was extremely unorganized and high very frenzied so reports indicate she was stabbed 47 times and she had defensive wounds on her hands and arms some of the wounds suggest she tried to fight her off her attacker by grabbing the blade while he was stabbing her jesus yeah could you imagine being that desperate she suffered knife blows to her back chest torso and the back of her head some of the stab wounds to her chest looks as if they were inflicted by a downward thrust so this would indicate she was already laying on the floor when he delivered those blows you know so the medical examiner report states the depth of some of the stab wounds is enough to puncture Ashley's lung in fact out of the 47 stab wounds at least 12 of them could have been the fatal blow and some of those were approximately six inches deep um, Detective Tom Small later testified. He said one of the stabbings actually penetrated the skull and took out a chunk of the skull like a puzzle piece. Jesus. God yeah. dang, man. I know. So when the authorities arrived on the scene, they noticed that one of Ashley's legs was bent and they were parted slightly. The way they were positioned led the detective to theorize the killer moved Ashley's body to the landing. And the crime scene technicians also found a bloody shoe print on the hardwood floor in the living room. It was from an Adidas tennis shoe. Um, and when Detective, Detective Small talked about the attack, he goes, this was violent overkill. The killer was a modern-day Jack the Ripper, vicious and very personal. He wanted to inflict as many wounds as he could. I knew in my mind that the person who did this was a serial killer, that he had done this before and he'd gotten away with it. Now, it didn't take long for the authorities to determine the killer's motivation wasn't robbery or sexual assault. Because when Ashley's body was found, she's wearing valuable jewelry, and there was approximately $300 cash in the house. Under her bathrobe, her boy short panties, bra, and 
camisole were all intact. They hadn't been removed or anything. So Detective Small's team also couldn't find evidence of a forced entry. The windows had security bars and all of them were locked. From the outside to get through the front door, one had to first get through a metal screen door. And this screen door was secure and the front door was locked. None of the points of entry had evidence of tool marks, which would indicate someone pried them open. Therefore, the person responsible for Ashley's murder either had a key or she willingly invited them inside. Now, Detective Small soon realized with people who knew Ashley... There were actually no shortage of people to interview, right? Um, she was young, beautiful, who, had, who was kind to others and loved to party. Therefore, others were naturally drawn to her. She was popular. Even though she'd been living in L.A. for only about two years, he talked, she, he talked about her social life. She experimented and ran in circles that the average person wouldn't want to run into. She did some things as an adult you wouldn't be proud of, but she was a sweet gal and everybody loved her. Now... This guy's name cracks me up. Detective Thomas Shevelak. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Was, Ashley was the one to interview Ashton Kutcher and was quickly able to rule him out as a suspect. The detective believed the actor didn't feel he had a reason to call 911 when he came over because from his vantage point, there was nothing to indicate anything was wrong. He later told the jury about that interview. He said there was no window covering so he can clearly see into the residence. He said the place was a bit of disarray because she had been painting so that didn't raise any alerts to him and he saw what he assumed would red wine on the carpet that led to her bedroom. Um, and it was actually her blood and if he could have seen a better vantage point he would have seen her on the stairs himself. So prior to um, the evening of February 21st Ashley's father was in town helping her with her remodeling. In fact, she had given him a ride to the airport and dropped him off at approximately 5.50 that night. After she returned home, her rental manager, Mark Durbin, went over to fix one of the light fixtures in the house. And while he was there, they had sex. According to Mark, when he got up to leave Ashley's at approximately 8.15, she told him she didn't really want to meet up with Ashley that night. And she asked him if he would stay longer so she'd have an excuse not to go. But Mark said he had already made plans to hook up with another woman later that night. Go, Mark. <laughs> I know, right? You whore. And she was due to arrive around that same time, so he couldn't stay. So when he left, he took the time to lock the front door. Then before returning to his place, he looked at Ashley through the window and blew her a kiss. He lived in the same complex, so from his unit, he had a clear view of the front of her unit. He told the authorities approximately 60 minutes after he left... Um, he glanced out his window when he noticed the motion sensor light going off in front of her unit. And in the light's glow, he saw a man who was approximately six foot, weighed maybe 175 pounds with light colored hair. Um, and according to Mark, the guy was just pacing back and forth. Now, after Detective Small interviewed several dozen people associated with her, he realized something consistent with most of them. There's a mysterious heater man. Apparently, the majority of Ashley's friends had one thing or another to say about the heater repair guy who kept trying to insinuate himself in her life. According to reports, his, her first encounter with this mystery guy was approximately one year before she was murdered. One day in early 2000, she and a, her friend Christopher Duran were standing in front of her residence, and Christopher's car had a flat tire, and he'd been over to fix it, and another man came up to them and offered to help. Christopher later said he was a heating and air conditioning man, and he gave us a card. Within a few short days, the strange man randomly called Ashley or arrived at her house unexpectedly to visit her. According to him, he only lived approximately one block down the road, and he often took his dog for a walk in the park across the street from her bungalow. Now, Christopher testified that there was one specific incident that kind of stood out to him. 
He said that he showed up at the door out of breath, sweating, and told us about there were cops at his house asking about his ex-girlfriend in Chicago that was killed. And he was avoiding, he was avoiding the police. Now, after Ashley's murder, Christopher recalled seeing the heater guy standing in front of the complex staring at the unit. Now, a former roommate of Ashley's, Justin Peterson, said that he and the heater guy attended the same art gallery opening one night. And in fact, he gave the man a ride home afterward. And while he was driving, for some unexplained reason, the guy reached over and grabbed Justin's arm, squeezed it, then let it go. Like, what the hell was that about? I'd been looking at him saying, dude, what, what the fuck was that about? I would have been, uh, <laughs> dude, what, what's your trip? Dude, what's your trip, bud? What, what, what's your malfunction? <laughs> so Justin remembered pulling up to a green Ford pickup at approximately 10 p.m. where he dropped the guy off. And when he returned to the bungalow where he and Ashley were living at around 3 a.m., he was surprised to see that same green Ford pickup parked on the street in front. He distinctly remembered there was someone sitting inside the vehicle and it was running and the lights were off. So the guy came over to fix Ashley's heater the next day, and Justin asked him why he'd been parked out front. According to Justin, the man said he started stuttering, and he eventually tells me he could, couldn't go home. He said that the FBI was there waiting to collect DNA samples from him. And he continues to tell me his best friend's girlfriend was murdered. Then the man placed his foot on a table, and the hem of his pant leg raised up, and Justin saw he had a big hunting knife and a sheath strapped to his shin. And he also noticed that it was a serrated knife. Justin also told law enforcement officials that Ashley threw a party approximately a month before she was murdered and she invited him there and he showed up. However, unlike the rest of the party guests, this guy didn't socialize with anybody. In fact, he just sat on the couch and stared at Ashley the whole night. Maybe he's shy. Dude, according to Justin, she thought he was a nice person and that's why she didn't fear him. Really? You're shy? Yeah. Where? Oh, fine. But you know what? I feel... I feel attacked now. I am very shy. Do you feel shy? Do you feel attacked? I am because I'm shy and afraid of people and uh, kind of keep to myself. Continue. Yeah. And I'm I'm a nun. So there you have it. So ask a detective or for any police department across the world, right? And I'd be willing to lay odds. Every single one of them will tell you there's no such thing as a coincidence, right? Mm-hmm. That was how Detective Small felt about the unidentified heater guy. The heater, unidentified heater repairman. No matter who he interviewed among Ashley's known acquaintances, none of them knew his name. However, there were some things they could all agree on. Now, the man wasn't exactly Ashley's friend, and she definitely wasn't sleeping with him. But he was always trying to be close to her. And she was always an extrovert, so she never questioned his motives, right? Because people were naturally drawn to her. So Detective Small interviewed several of her acquaintances who told him the strange heater man boasted about filing a lawsuit against a truck owner who hit him when he was crossing the street near where he lived. According to the statements, the truck owner, truck's owner was a contractor hired to build the Kodak Theater. Now, the seasoned detective decided, you know what, let's go straight to the source. So he contacted the construction company and asked them whether they had any settled or pending lawsuits involving a pedestrian in that area. They said, no, we don't have any records to that effect. So then he contacted company and inquired about lawsuits with pedestrians. None were found again. And so he, he was undaunted. He did a record check on all reported accidents in that area around that time of the construction. And he got a hit. Someone had actually struck a dog and the dog's owner was Michael Gargiulo. Oh, damn. I know, right? Now he had a name. 
And with that came a driver's license picture. So armed with the new information, he went back to his witnesses, you know, with the six pack of photos and they picked them out. I mean, almost every single one of them picked him out. Now, he continued to work the case. Then things took another unexpected turn in the fall of 2002. So while he was at work one day, a few detectives who had flown in from Cook County, Illinois, um, they had a photo of Gargiulo and his name in their hand. So he said, when they said the name, I asked my partner to come over quick. They said, you know that guy? I said, I think he's a potential suspect in my case. And they were shocked to hear that. Now, the Cook County detectives were investigating a murder from 1993 and it tracked Gargiolo to Los Angeles trying to get a DNA sample, but they couldn't find him. So in the following weeks, Small was able to obtain a search warrant for his last known residence um, and the van he was driving and got a court order for a DNA sample. So the van was located and detectives found three different knives, a box cutter, binoculars, and the license plate of the vehicle inside the car. Now, Gargiolo's apartment was, like, sparsely furnished. There was no furniture other than a kitchen table and a chair. The bedding was on the floor, and men's clothing hung in the closet. A backpack containing a, a plastic Halloween mask and a handgun were also found in the closet, according to court files. Now, Gargiolo eventually arrived home, and he was transported to the hospital where he had to get blood, hair, and urine samples for DNA testing. And he goes, what if my DNA was on a keychain that was left at a crime scene? This is what he asked the cops. Um, he suddenly blurted out when they were on their way to the hospital. Um, they can't find my DNA from 10 years ago at a crime scene, can they? Why did it take them so long to find the DNA? Now, why would you say that, right? No shit. So, what a fucking whack job. Yeah. According to LAPD detective Michael Pelletier, who was in charge of taking him to the hospital, he later testified. He said, what are you talking about? And Gargiolo said, never mind. Now, apparently in um, Chicago, Trisha Picaccio was a beautiful studio. She was a popular 18-year-old girl who was just days away from moving uh, to moving out of her home to go to Purdue University because she was going to major in genetic engineering. Now, she grew up in the upscale Chicago neighborhood of Glenview, and she had a storybook life. She was a cheerleader. She had tons of friends, loved music, and she was on the debate team. No, And she wasn't even one to drink or party. But she would rather, because she'd rather be home reading or studying. But she also only lived one block away from Gargiulo. On August 13th, 1993, she was walking down the street on her way to meet her boyfriend, who was going to take her to a doctor's appointment, when Gargiulo, who was then 17, drove by in his father's van with another friend inside and stopped and offered her a ride. She accepted and was dropped off at the designated meeting place. The next day, Picasso got up as usual and went to her job at a department store where she worked as a, at the cosmetics counter. Then she came home, took a shower before she headed out with two friends to go to a road rally. Um, her father, Rick, said, I, would, I used to always tease her about using all the hot water. When she got done washing her hair, there would be no hot water. I said, take it easy on the hot water. And that's the last time I ever saw her alive. God, that's fucked up, man. I know. After the rally, the girls ate at a TGI Friday restaurant. Then she went home, and approximately, it was about 12.30 a.m., and on the front porch with her key in her hand, she never made it inside. Someone came up behind her, twist her left arm behind her back to the point that it fractured, according to the autopsy report. Then she was stabbed a dozen times, including three fatal wounds to her heart, lung, and abdomen. 
She was also stabbed in the arm, the collarbone, and in the back, the medical examiner said. The attack happened so quickly, she didn't even have a chance to fight back. Now, she fell to the ground, though, dropping her door key next to her head. She was able to do one thing that would help the detectives (laughs) 17 years in the future and 1,700 miles away. She got some of the DNA under her fingernails. Good girl. I know, right? I always tell people, if you're in a situation like that, you leave as much DNA on them and take as much of theirs as you can. You know? Now, her body wasn't discovered until the next morning when her father opened the door. Oh, dude. And so um, they couldn't bear the tragedy, so the family moved out of that home for four years. (laughs) Medical examiners recovered the DNA from under her fingernails, but couldn't make a match until they received Gargiola's blood samples from L.A. in 2003. I know, isn't that sad? I would, I would hate to be the one, you know, knowing how close he was to her. Now, Gargiola was born in 76 and grew up with six siblings, including several sisters. He lived 100 yards away from the Picasso family, and he wasn't the most popular kid. Um... According to some um, like discussion boards on the uh, on his case, uh, my family and I lived three houses down from Mike and his family. He always was the odd one out from his family, who were all very nice people. He was just always angry and taking it out on others, usually bullying them. Then another one said, "My older brother remembers Michael and remembers him being quite angry and violent." Then Trisha's mother, Diane Picaccio, remembers. Gargiolo playing with one of her two sons as they grew up. However, unlike the other neighborhood kids, he never came inside their home for lunch. He was odd, um, she said. Uh, although Gargiolo knew her son, Diane said Trisha never had any type of contact with him. So one day Diane went over to the Gargiolo home to pick up her younger son who had been playing with one of the other brothers, you know, Gargiolo's brothers. And she was shocked by a conversation that she had with his parents. The parents said, we're afraid of Michael. We would like to kick him out of the house, but we're afraid he'll come back and kill us. His father said he probably needs medicine, but he won't take it. Jesus Could you imagine Christ, being afraid man. of your own child? Fuck. Yeah. The day Trisha's body was found, Gargiola called up his girlfriend, said he was upset and nervous and scared and wanted her to go with him to run an errand. She later testified that he got out of a car with a small green canvas bag that he said contained knives, and he threw the bag in a building, in an abandoned building. So after Trisha's murder, his parents packed up and moved, leaving him alone in the house. They, instead of kicking him out, they just left, right? Dude, that's... Yeah. This is getting more and more I know. fucked up. And his, mother, and his mom later died of cancer. Now, he later moved to L.A., where he began working out at a gym with sights on becoming a, having a pro boxing career. He also trained in martial arts and worked as a bouncer at a Sunset Strip nightclub. He was approximately six foot two and with a dragon tattoo on his back. He was muscular and like they said he was very physically fit. He was good looking and he went through a string of girlfriends, including a girl by the name of Velma Carrillo, um, whom he met in an online chat room. He told her he was a boxer train was a boxer training for the Olympics and he had left Chicago because his best friend's sister had been murdered. He came with peace with trying to pin it on him, according to the court files. Now, he went on to say that his DNA would be at the crime scene because the victim's almost family to him. And L.A. County Sheriff's Detective Joseph Purcell later testified regarding a Gargiolo conversation with Carrillo, where he's, Michael Gargiolo would tell her how DNA and the science of DNA would be used to capture suspects. 
Now, he thought of himself as an expert of sorts because he was an avid watcher of all those forensic shows. Oh, you know the experts that we all have. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. You know. <laughs> so, one, uh, another woman, other women had more violent encounters. There was Maria Garola who dated Guardiola and found him to be forceful, demanding, and threatening. He once hit her, and he detached her retina. Now, Michael Gargiolo had threatened to kill her if she ever left him and had also told her that because of his study and degree in forensic, he'd be able to kill her and get away with it. I'm thinking, what degree? But um, another girlfriend actually called the police when he shocked her with a taser gun. And he lived with various women off and on and fathered several children. His job as a bouncer was left behind for something more stable. He got a job working as an air conditioning and heating repairman who used blue medical booties at work. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> so now El Monte is a small working class suburb of L.A., right? Where someone like and a lady by the name of Maria, Maria Bruno could blend into the landscape while going about her daily life. It's a lower income area and the residents barely make ends meet. Um, and, you know, it's just 15 miles west of wealthy Los Angeles. But it's a place that has had that has been seen has seen an influx of prostitution drugs and gang crime over the last several decades but there are pockets of people where people like bruno lived in safety and relative comfort that is until december 1st 2005 on that night jack the reprisile killer struck inside bruno's apartment in a frenzied attack that left the aspiring model looking like she'd been drained of half her blood like the final Ripper victim, Mary Kelly, you know, 107 years before, mm -hmm. the killer had the benefit of an enclosed place where he could spend time systematically mutilating her body. Now, um, Sheriff, L.A. Sheriff's Detective Mark Lillenfield says, I've been a homicide detective for 17 years, and this is one of the most gruesome crime scenes I've ever seen. There was a massive amount of blood. It's amazing what type of damage one person can inflict on another. Now, the killer entered Bruno's apartment through a kitchen window after she went to bed. He took a knife from a sealed package in the kitchen and used it to slash her throat all the way down to her spine. Then he stabbed her 17 times in the chest. Go. He, the killer also cut off both of her breasts and placed them in her mouth. What the fuck? I like, know. Like, for real? What the fuck? For real. I know. Exactly. Jeez. Now, what he, a fucking piece of shit. I know. That's what I'm saying right there. Now, Bruno actually once commented to friends that she, there was a weird guy at her building who had been seen watching her. And about five days before she was killed, the man had followed her from the parking lot into her home and then left about 10 seconds later. When she was asked about it, she goes, oh, he's OK. Now, her body was discovered by her ex-husband who came to her house to take her to work. He was not considered a suspect because the pair had had an amicable divorce and remained friends. Now, the killer had stalked Maria, knew her routine, and knew she lived alone. It's someone who planned it, was methodical, systematic, organized, and knew what they were doing. He obviously had spent some time at the scene, a minimum of 15 minutes and maybe even several hours. Now, the detective found a blue hospital-style paper booty in front of her apartment. It contained Bruno's blood and skin cells around the plastic that weren't large enough to get a DNA match, though. Now, the witnesses who saw the man stalking Bruno worked with police to produce a composite, which he, the detective distributed around L.A. And six months after the attack, Gargiola was in a Pasadena restaurant with his girlfriend when she saw this 
this sketch and she was back at her table. Um, she was with a, her girlfriend, Kwok Na Hyun. Yeah. I'm sorry. Did you get something <laughs> caught in your throat? No. Kwok Na Hyun. We marked about how that composite looked just like, you know, m- talked about the composite drawing. And Gargiola responded that he knew the woman and she was very beautiful with big breasts. Right? It's like, oh, my God. You like, you know, kind of like reminded me of what Cesar Baroni did to his friend's girlfriend in the front seat. You know, don't worry. This will never happen to somebody like you. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, creepy. So Santa Monica, not Santa Monica. It's a wealthy playground of sun, fun, beautiful people, right? Everybody wants to go to Santa Monica. In 2008, Michelle Murphy, a 28-year-old blonde who worked in the movie post-production and lived in an upstairs apartment just several blocks from the beach. Now, after she went for a jog, um, uh, she would often go f- for a jog or exercise in the carport under her apartment. She would sometimes see a van parked in the alley with the name Gus the Plumber painted on the side. Once in a while, she'd see a tall, dark-haired man near the van and would say hello in passing. On April 28, 2008, she went to sleep just like any other night, but she was suddenly awoke just before midnight and to some searing pain of someone plunging a knife into her chest. Now, the man was straddling her and continued to stab her in the arm and the shoulder in her right arm as she tried to wiggle sideways to get away. At one point, she grabbed a hold of the blade and sliced her fingers to the bone. This assailant was having a difficult time holding her down uh, because she was nude and slippery because, you know, she slept in the nude and so she was covered in all that blood. Right, right, And at one point, he ended up slicing his own wrist. And at that point, he paused, and this allowed Michelle to get her feet under his chest, and she launched him off the bed into the wall. Good girl. He hit the bedroom door. Um, Then he mumbled, sorry, before he escaped out the front door. Like, really? That's all you're going to say? Sorry. At least he apologized. I mean, come on. Let's give him some credit for that. Yeah. So he had entered through a window, but had left the front door slightly open for an easy getaway after the attack. Murphy's quick wits and tenacity had saved her life. Now, Lewis responded to the scene and found a blood trail leading down Murphy's steps and across the alley and down a walkway toward another apartment complex. The blood-soaked bedding was tested for DNA, as were the droplets outside. A month later, Lewis was able to make a match thanks to DNA sample that Chicago investigators had entered into a national database, and it came back as Michael Gargiolo. Now, in 2007... Uh, this is to tie up some loose ends to figure out, you know, how he tied into um, uh, Michelle Murphy and uh, the Gonzalez. Uh, not Gonzalez, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> right, right, right. Anyways, that's what I'm trying to say. In 2007, he had started working for Gus the Plumber, and he got married and moved in with his wife, Anna Luz Gonzalez, and who lived in Santa Monica apartment across the alley from Michelle Murphy. In fact... His new home gave him an unobstructed view into her kitchen and her dining room, and his wife was asleep in bed when he went and attacked this woman. Dude, what the fuck? Know, like, for right? real, man. Now, Shit. of course, he was arrested on June 6, 2008, by Santa Monica police, right? Then on July 7th, the Cook County State's Attorney's Office charged him with first-degree murder for the Trisha Picaccio murder. Now, although he was charged in the two California murders, as well as the Picasso murder in Illinois, police didn't link him to any other murders. And he allegedly told the authorities in L.A. County Jail that just because 10 women were killed and his DNA was present doesn't mean he murdered anybody. 
which led the authorities to believe he has more victims out there. Now, Mimi has dubbed him the Hollywood Ripper or the Chiller Killer. Now, he was held at um, L.A. County Jail while he waited a capital murder trial. Um, then uh, his trial was scheduled to begin in October 2017. Then after some delays, it actually began May 2nd, 2019. And in May 2019, um, Ashton Kutcher was actually called to the stand to testify. Then October 15, 2019, Gargiola was convicted on all counts. And the penalty phase of his trial started on October 7th. And he was facing either death penalty or life in prison without parole. Um, on October 18, 2019, a jury rendered a verdict of death for Michael after several hours of deliberation. But uh, the sentencing phase continued to be delayed until... Uh, July 16, 2021, where he was sentenced to death. And now hes they're expecting to extradite him back to Illinois to, to face a trial for murdering Trisha Picaccio. I think Illinois does have the death penalty, I yeah. think. Yeah, so, well, and so does California, but California, there's a moratorium. So, yeah. Oh, no, it says here that if he's extradited and convicted in Illinois, he'll face a sentence of 25 years to life. Oh, okay, so death penalty is not I think it's, maybe it's because he was only 17 at the time the crime was committed. I don't know. Well, maybe, maybe. But yeah, could you imagine? I couldn't even imagine being Ashton Kutcher and you know knowing that she was in there and who knows if she could have saved her at that point. You know what I mean? Right, right. That's just but, Yeah. God damn, man. And knowing that you were looking right up at her body. Yeah, that you were looking at her blood on the floor and you thought it was red wine and uh, I mean, just a little bit different angle, and he would have been able to see your body laying there. Yeah, and that's what yeah. I was thinking of. Like, her body's right there. You're technically yeah. looking at her body. You're just not seeing it. Yeah. And uh, thinking, well, fuck it. I'm just going to go to my party, man. Yeah. Which I would have done that. I would have been, fuck her. Yeah. I'm going to go to the party. I'm going to get some new pussy. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, it's happened to me before, you know, where chicks get lippy or something. And you know what? Screw you. I'm, I know, I'm right? Here. Well, and back then, I mean, he was a partier, too. So it's like, I'm pretty sure it wasn't nothing if, you know, him and somebody blew each other off. It's like, whatever. You know? <laughs> Blowing I, each other? That is not what I meant, and you knew you're it. You're a pervert. So you're, I think you're a racist and a pervert. Whatever. You're racist against me. Yeah, that's what I am. Yep. That's what it is. I put up with all your bullshit. I, I put sweet. up with your bullshit more than anybody else on this planet. I am sweet and innocent like an angel. Like I said, I put up with your bullshit more than anybody else on this. Planet. My name is Saint Scottius. <laughs> okay, <coughs> the patron saint of hell. The patron saint <laughs> of, of horror of getting the booty. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm gonna throw up a little in my mouth again. Oh my god. Okay, this is this is gonna be a 45 minute okay, fucking episode. We'll so fuck it. We All got right. it. We got it. I try to aim for that hour. Remember, boys and girls, you can send us an email at BrutalNation at TwistedBlueLLC.com. Check us out on Medium, Crime Beat on Medium, and wherever you get your blogs. Log on to Facebook and join us at Citizens of Brutal Nation. If you're really nice, I'll show you my butt. Oh, my. Yeah, I was going through my photos the other day and still have that photo on there. I don't know why I still have it. You have a picture of my ass? Yeah, remember when you made me take it? Oh, yeah. I can't remember who I sent it to, but fuck it. That's hilarious. Yeah. No, not so much for me. When I opened up my pictures, I was like, whoa, there's a full know, moon. Full moon there's over full Vancouver. Moon. That's fucking full moon fever right there. Yeah. 
This show's copyrighted 2024 by Twisted Blue LLC. All rights are reserved. If you're hearing this or any part of this on anybody else's show or podcast, except for Metal Cross Radio, they're lying. Thieving bastards. And we will talk to you boys and girls later on. Bye-bye. Bye.